0: what a wonderful morning so good to gather and to be able to witness a baptism first thing this morning how many times do you get to say that not very often right not often enough during this past year which has been dominated by as you know covid we've had to step back and assess what is truly critical for the church I've argued many times, I know you've heard me, that it's vitally important for the saints to gather physically for, for worship. But the question is, why is it so crucial for us to gather? And at least part of this has to do with the fellowship of the saints, does it not? Also, communion and baptisms, think about it, can only be truly observed when we're physically together in one place. And that's those are two ordinances of the church the the lord has commanded us to observe both life preaching i would argue is another crucial aspect of gathering but there's another vital part of worship which i believe brings saints together in unity we just experienced it singing 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 together proclaiming the truths of scripture through song and worship to our lord it's I would argue it's absolutely crucial for the saints to come together and sing and worship to our Lord. I also believe it is is important that we hear each other's voices physically. Therefore, I think everyone, all of us here, should consider our singing in in this light. This has great implication, does it not? As we critically think through even potential Further COVID restrictions that, that could be out there mask wearing and to a certain extent social distancing negatively impact our ability to sing together, to hear each other's voices. But what is the basis for our assertion that it's critical for us to sing together? Why, why do we believe these things? Well, I believe this question will be answered in today's passage in Ephesians 5, 19 and 20 as we continue our study of ephesians so let me pray and read the passage and as i'm praying i just ask that you would pray for me this morning our time is a little short and so it's one of those classic situations where i've prepared probably too much material to be able to get through in a in a one sermon with the limited time that i have but just pray that i would be able to do what i'm doing with clarity this morning as i pray for this time Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again, praise you that we could gather, we can gather together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can sing together, proclaiming the truth of scripture. Such a wonderful and vitally important ministry in the life of our church. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians 5. starting in verse 15, reading for context. Paul writes, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ to God even the Father and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ now as i was meditating on ephesians 5:19 and thinking of how to introduce this sermon i wanted to impress upon the church the importance of music to the body of Christ the church has a rich tradition of music which stretches all the way back to the book of acts all the way back to the book of acts to pentecost even my hope is that grace bible church will in some way in some small way, help preserve and carry forward this treasure of music. For the introduction of this sermon, I wanted to use a story of a great hymn of the faith. And as I looked at at story after incredible story, my mind kept coming back to one hymn and one hymn writer. Perhaps I keep returning to it or kept returning to it because of my personal love for music and the importance of music in my own personal life. You know, we all have... Our earliest memories, many times those recollections are something of something significant in our life. Now I can't be certain why, but one of my earliest memories is of being at church with my father. I can't remember much about it except that I would roam around the stage as my father led the congregation. It could be that I recall this because others have reminded me over the ensuing years. But I do have one vivid memory of those days. You see, I loved the hymn Amazing Grace. I remember begging my father to sing it with him. I'm sure that I had no idea what the words meant because I was only three or maybe four at the time. Perhaps it's so important to me today because it has been in my mind, the words of Amazing Grace has been in my mind and heart for all these years. Who could ever forget Newton's words in that first verse? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Those words are etched in my mind and heart, as I said earlier. It is in them, in those words, that I first heard the call of God on my heart. It would be many years, actually, before I would come to faith in Christ, but I have no doubt, looking back, that this hymn was part of God's call on my life. I was not exposed to solid doctrine in my early years except in the words of this simple hymn. Let's think about that. Perhaps John Newton meant that to be the case. He was born in 1725 in London. He had a godly mother who died when he was six. Prior to her death, he sat at his mother's knees as she taught him the great hymns of the faith and taught him scripture. Left mainly to himself after her death, Newton became a debauched sailor, pressed into naval service against his will when he was 18. And when he was 20, he was put off his ship on some small islands just southeast of Sierra Leone in West Africa. And for almost a year and a half, he lived as a virtual slave in destitute circumstances. The wife of his master despised him and treated him cruelly. Cruelly, The African slaves would try to smuggle him food because they felt sorry for him. Think about that. Later in life, he marveled at how God sent a ship with a captain who knew Newton's father and managed to free him from his slavery. Just a year later, God freed him from his bondage to sin. It's an amazing story. In his later years, John Newton became a powerful preacher of the gospel and was used to put an end to the slave trade. He also became a champion for young children, just like I was at three. So you think about the words of John Newton was used over 200 years later to reach my ear as I first heard the gospel through this hymn. One can only imagine how he remembered the precious hymns that his mother had taught him prior to the age of six. See the connection? And how God must have used them as he he brought the the gospel to his remembrance so many years later. Can you imagine how God used the words his mother taught him to save him from his sins? And how the Lord brought to bear all his struggles as he penned nearly 300 hymns in his lifetime. The hymns he wrote were born out of a life of grief, grief, which the Lord turned to song. Our Lord has always used psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to communicate truth among His people. We can't fathom the number of stories just like Newton's, or mine, for that matter. It's probable that the Lord powerfully moved in your life through a song. Martin Luther says, Music is one of the fairest and most glorious gifts of God, to which Satan is a bitter enemy. For it removes from the heart the weight of sorrow and the fascination of evil thoughts. Is it no wonder that Satan has hijacked music? It's the Lord's idea, correct? Right? It's the reason I'm so concerned about the state of modern Christian music. We must work as a church to protect the rich heritage of music handed down through the generations. From the beginning of the church, God has used doctrines set to music to communicate rich theology about Himself to His people. This is true from our early years and through our entire lives. Just this past week, I found myself filled with the Spirit, worshiping our Lord as I was driving, of all things. Those personal times of worship are incredibly powerful. But it's our corporate worship that can be even more powerful as we join together with our voices to sing the rich truths of doctrine. I'm firmly convinced this is what Paul had in mind as he wrote the words of Ephesians 5, 19. Now, before we get into verses 19 and 20, let me take a few minutes to review where we are in the study. Our current study started in verse 15, where Paul called the church to, walk the, to the walk of wisdom. In that verse, he urged the church to regard their walk carefully to ensure they were walking not as unwise, but wise. And in verses 16 through 21, he gives four instructions. And we've been walking through these instructions over the past few weeks. Four instructions for regarding your walk carefully. As Christians, first, you must, we've said, redeem your weeks closely. In other words, he called for the Christian to make the most of the time that has been given. Put simply, to walk wisely, you must redeem the time for kingdom purposes. In 517, he gives a second instruction. You must recognize Yahweh's will conscientiously, is what we've said. Said another way, to walk wisely, we need to know and understand the will of God for His people. It is in this way, in understanding His will, that He guides our footsteps through His Word. And in 5.18, He gives a third instruction. You must realize the Spirit's work consistently. In, In verse 18, He gives two commands. A negative command... Do not get drunk with wine, and a positive command, but be filled with the Spirit. So, to walk wisely, then, we must avoid drunkenness because it is a waste. Instead, we must be filled, instead of being filled with alcohol, we must be filled with the Spirit. Now, last week, we studied the command to be filled with the Spirit. And as we transition from the negative command, not to be drunk with wine, we emphasize the need to avoid Satan's counterfeits. The world is rife with fake spiritual experiences. We must be aware that, that the church is also full of spirit, spiritual charlatans who lead people down wrong, God's people down wrong paths. I would argue that these charlatans cause pe- Christians to focus on deeds, deeds of the flesh or works of the flesh, more than they encourage true spiritual growth. Corey Tenboom says this trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. But when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then the ministry of Jesus just flows out of you. In other words, the works of the flesh are incredibly confusing and create nothing but chaos in the churches. Now, some of these frauds are more obvious than others. False teachers such as Kenneth Copeland, Paula White, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn. They should be obvious to the mature Christian. But I would argue that their influence filters down into local churches where men and women try to replicate parts of their ministry, parts of their teaching. Beloved, anything, anything that is not orderly, but chaotic and confusing cannot be of God. Cannot be of God. A static Experiences such as being slain in the Spirit and holy laughter are not from God because they're confusing. They're chaotic. Let me give you two examples that I believe have been misunderstood in the modern church. The gift of tongues and healing. Some seek the gift of tongues as an indication of being filled with the Spirit. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it not? 5.19 is very clear what the Bible teaches, that we are to be singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. That is being filled with the Spirit and giving thanks to Him. I would argue that speaking in tongues is a sign to Israel. According to 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty one. God gave men of strange tongues to speak to His people, people Israel. Yet they rejected the words. We saw this fulfilled in Acts 2 at Pentecost. The wording used in Acts 2 recalls the Old Testament account of the Tower of Babel. There, in in Genesis chapter 11, Yahweh came down to thwart the people's ambition to build a tower to heaven and make a name for themselves. So the Lord came down and He confused their languages. In Acts 2, the Spirit of God came down to proclaim salvation in Christ by making the gospel intelligible in the languages of the people who were present. It's a reversal of the Tower of Babel, if you will. Israel was to proclaim their Messiah and be a light to the nations, yet they rejected their Messiah. Therefore, tongues were an indication to the Jews that the kingdom of God had come to the nations and that they had rejected their Messiah. In Acts chapter 10, Peter went to Caesarea and preached the gospel to the Gentiles. In Acts 10:44 through 46, it says that while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit, Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. In verse 45: All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. Gentiles could also be translated on the nations. Also, see the connection. Then it says in 46, For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. See the connections there with tongues? Here we see the gift of tongues as an indication that the nations have been included in the ministry of the gospel. You can see a similar event in Acts chapter 19, where Paul first preached the gospel in Ephesus. Now, some also seek the gift of healing. Claiming that God still miraculously heals at the hand of, this is important, still miraculously heals at the hand of certain men and women. Let me just say up front, let me just be clear. Fake healings are not from God. You see, God is still in the business of healing. There's no doubt. I believe James's exhortation in James 5, he addresses healing in the context of the church. You know what he says? He says, go to the next healing service and ask him to heal you in the, name of the power, in the name and the power of God. Now, That's not what he says, is it? That's not what he says. Of course he didn't say, say that. Here's what he said. He said, anyone, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, there's much there, I I understand. But clearly what James is saying is the prayer of mature elders offered in faith is how God chooses in this age to heal his people. I I didn't say that. God did. We we need to realize that God does still still heal. Even natural bodily healing comes from God, and you can't miss that. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that in Christ, all things hold together. The writer of Hebrews says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I would argue then that all life comes from him and that life is sustained by him, which I believe includes the body, the body's ability to heal. Now in scripture, of course, we do see a miraculous healing by Christ and his apostles. They healed maladies such as blindness, deafness, and lifelong lameness. Uh, the dead were even raised, when, uh, such as when Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb. But, beloved, we don't see these types of healings today, do we? The, the guy, the, the charlatan that is saying he can heal, uh, he's not showing up at the hospital and healing people who are truly sick, is he not? I would argue that these miraculous events clearly show that Jesus and His apostles were truly of God. These miracles then authenticated their ministries. John MacArthur says this, Those physical healings were vivid displays of both Jesus' power and His compassion. They were proof of His deity and living demonstrations of His divine authority. They established His unlimited ability to liberate anyone and everyone from the bondage the penalty and the consequences of sin. As such, the healing ministry of Jesus was illustrative of the gospel message, a true expression of divine compassion and a definitive verification of His messianic credentials." End quote. Put simply, Jesus' miracles proved that He had authority over all things in this world, including sickness and death. That, therefore, they had special significance. Jesus' miracles came to a head in Matthew chapter 12 when the Pharisees accused him of casting out demons in the power of Beelzebul. If you want to turn there, in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 1225, 20, Jesus asked the Pharisees how, this, how Satan's kingdom would stand if it was divided against itself. In other words, how could he undo Satan's work in the name of Satan without dividing, dividing Satan's kingdom? Then in twelve twenty eight, he says this, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying that he does these miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then he says something in verse 29 that I believe will prove why Jesus performed these miracles. He says this Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? Said another way, Jesus has shown His miraculous power over Satan's domain to show that He has the power, He also has the power to forgive sins and to set the captives free. He has the power then to bind the strong man. He has the power then to plunder the house. And, beloved, He does this every time a sinner hears the gospel and is made alive in Christ. Therefore, I would argue that we must never overlook the miracle of salvation. We, we witness miracles every day. The miracle of, of, of a lady who would come and be baptized after worshiping idols, that's the miracle that we need to be uh, proclaiming. He makes the dead alive in Christ, and He raises them, and He seats them in the heavenlies in Christ. He takes them from the darkness and places them in the light. Every time a sinner is made alive in Christ, we see the true and authentic power of the Holy Spirit displayed in their lives. That's Paul's main point in Ephesians 1 through 2.10. The power of God displayed in salvation of those who are spiritually dead and enslaved in their sin. See why I say that these charlatans point at these works? That they're confusing. It confuses the church. It makes chaos in the church. We need to be pointing to the power of God and salvation, because that is what we're left here to do, is share the gospel among the nations. That's our mission. We shouldn't lose focus by focusing on these things that don't matter. Create confusion and chaos. So the question is, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, last week we saw that being filled with the Spirit is a continual process of yielding your life to the Holy Spirit's power and influence. And as such, we need to answer the question, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Now, I believe, based on even what I just said, many get this answer wrong. We've looked at the spiritual and worldly fakes, but what is the uh, result of obeying Paul's command in verse 18. Well, in verses 19 and 20, Paul gives two amazing and yet profoundly simple results of obeying the commands in verse 18. First, you will treasure our Lord. You will treasure our Lord. Secondly, you will give thanks to our Father. Now look at your text in verses 18 and 19. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your, with your heart to the Lord. So in verse 19, let's look at the first amazing result of obeying the commands of verse 18. Amazing result one, you will treasure the Lord. Look at verse 19. In verse eighteen, he commanded the church at Ephesus not to get drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. Surprisingly, in nineteen he points to the worship, to worship in song as the first result and indication of a spirit filled life. Before we dive into the, the details, let's look more generally at, at the idea of worship. Then we'll delve into the subject of music as we exposit verse nineteen. Worship is the reverential response of creation to the all-encompassing magnificence of God. Worship has the idea of praising God for His immutable attributes. Worship could also have the idea of treasuring Him or making much of Him. The Old Testament gives several pictures of how we should worship God. Worship could include bringing an offering to God. It could include, could be bowing down in His presence as an outward display of an inner attitude of reverence before the Creator. Worship could also be lifting up or exalting God with praise. Worship could also be serving Him as an indication that one's life has been consecrated for Him. But lastly, it could be singing praises. Now, for the purpose of Ephesians 5.19, we'll focus on singing praises and worship. The Hebrew word halal could be defined as an act of celebrating God. The word hallelujah is derived from the Hebrew pra- phrase meaning to praise Yahweh. Praise Yah. Praise Yahweh. This type of praise generally involved singing His praises. The psalmist proclaims in Psalm 33, 1, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Literally, the psalmist is saying, sing for joy in Yahweh. Now, before we move to Ephesians 5.19, let's quickly survey how Scripture speaks of singing and music. Israel had a rich heritage of singing praises to the Lord. In Psalm 40, verse 3, David says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. So as followers of the one true God, He puts a new song in our hearts. We praise Him with a song of praise. In Psalm 96, the psalmist tells the people, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. We see then that tie of being filled with the Spirit and singing. Singing about the Lord and singing the good tidings of what He has done in our lives by saving us. Doing that day to day. Psalm 98, 1 has a similar refrain. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. You see there the the connection of singing what the Lord has done. uh, Singing to one another, uh, proclaiming what the Lord has done. What He's accomplished. In Psalm 147, the psalmist proclaimed, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. The prophets also joined the call call to sing God's praises. Isaiah called for the people to sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the end of the earth. Jeremiah proclaimed, Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for He has delivered the soul of the needy one. The church also has a rich Tradition of singing praises to our God. This practice started before the cross and Pentecost. If you, didn't, if you haven't noticed, at the close of the Lord's Supper, or the Last Supper, that, that Jesus and His disciples sang a hymn before they went out to the Mount of Olives. In Acts 16.25, Paul and Silas had been beaten and thrown into the inner prison and put placed in stocks in Philippi. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Can you imagine being the prisoners as they hear these two in the inner prison, placed in stocks, praising God through song? In Colossians 3.16, Paul connects psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with the Word of Christ. He says this, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord, or to God. It's a parallel verse with 519. In, in that verse, we see that the content of our music is to be rightly informed by the Word of Christ. So, with these things as a backdrop, let's pick up in 519. In this verse, Paul is going to give us five quick checks to ensure that our singing and music are truly worshipful. First, our singing should be intentionally done paul says verse 19 speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs speaking to one another the word translated speaking means to communicate with one another we are to be intentional in this communication now interestingly enough this word can be used of the chirp of birds or the grunts and other noises of our of animals Here, in this context, it includes any sound that's offered to God from a Spirit-filled heart. These sounds include music and words. Therefore, our music should be honoring to the Lord in its delivery and style. And the content is not to be unwholesome, but only words which edify according to the need of the moments. So, we are not to speak, then, with vain or empty words which deceive. Therefore the words we speak in our music must be informed by the word of Christ, that's going back to the Colossians 3:16 passage. <coughs> must be informed by the Word of Christ, which should be richly dwelling within us, and these words should radiate then from a spirit-filled heart. And Paul is clear that our music should be properly directed to one another. And that we're joining together, in, in praise of our Lord and as such we're to ensure the content of our songs communicate doctrine and theology Martin Luther says that next to theology I give to music the highest place and honor we see how David and all the saints have wrought their godly thoughts into verse rhyme and song church that there is a rich tradition of singing in the church, among Christians, and the content of this song, communi- these songs, these, these songs that we sing to one another communicate doctrine and they communicate theology. And we're to make sure that our, that our singing is rightly informed by the Word of God. This leads us to the second quick check. Our singing should be fully collaborated. Paul says to one another, The point is simple. We should be speaking or communicating to one another through song. I sometimes like to sing in the shower, and in those times, I mean, if you know how I sing here, you can only imagine how I sing in the shower. I sing at the top of my lungs, and I don't really care who's listening. And it's okay for me to sing to myself in the shower, but I should also be willing to sing the praises of my Savior in other settings, including corporate worship. Now, I know that some folks have more talent to sing than others, but talent is not the prerequisite for singing to the best of your ability during corporate worship. Let me put it this way. If you sing in the car, or if you sing in the shower, then you have no excuse not to sing with the saints on Sunday morning. And I know some of you, I've seen you, That that we have to sing. The, the, the heaven will be full of singing. Revelation 5 says that the voices of heaven will be singing a new song. This will be a song of redemption and victory. Every voice will be raised in the worship of the king. Jonathan Edwards says, in every soul there is a note. In some concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note, and all together blend in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever. End quote. Therefore, our corporate worship should look forward to this coming day, where every voice is raised to the worship of our Lord Jesus. He goes on to say the best and most beautiful and most perfect way that we have of expressing a sweet concord of mind to each other is by music. Beloved, we need to be a singing church. We need to be a singing church. We need to be a church that is that is adept at singing praises to our Lord as we look forward to that great day where we're singing together in heaven and uh, singing the praises of our Lord Jesus. I remember when we first started this church, we actually had a... a four or five families, and we would meet during the week to practice singing. You know why we did that? Because we wanted on Sunday the singing to be good. We only knew a few songs. It was amazing how few songs that we knew. But the ones we knew, we wanted to know well, so that we could sing those truths to one another. That should be our attitude even today as we learn new songs. We need to be singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. Let's lead us to the third quick check. Our singing should be rightly sourced. Rightly sourced. Music can be one of the more divisive issues in church life. I think this is true because most of us are drawn to music. Yet each of us has a unique taste in musical styles. I've known folks who can enjoy certain types of music with one group of friends and Yet they may listen to uh, other types of music in in different settings. And I I would even describe myself this way. I can find enjoyment and appreciation in different or multiple styles of music. But many people seem to be more set in what they like or dislike. They they seem to have stronger reactions for and against certain types of music. Very few of us, having said that, very few of of us are completely indifferent to music styles, are we not? we we have a style preference but style preference can be divisive among the saints as part of my study for this sermon i looked at several blogs written about how to choose the right church none of those blogs met, mentioned musical style as a factor in choosing church some of them mentioned the content of worship but they did not explicitly mention the style of the music i, I suspect that merely focusing on style of music seems to be a worldly way to choose a church. So they didn't mention that. But here's the thing. This is what we have to understand. The content of the music is much more critical than the music genre, but I would argue that the musical style may be an indication of the content. Think about that. I would also argue that certain varieties of music are not a good fit for congregational worship. You may listen to something on the radio that sounds great, but when you bring it into this context, it doesn't work. According to Paul, our music should be rightly sourced. He says that we should speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The word translated psalms literally means to pluck the string of a bow, or it could mean the sound of a stringed instrument. In the New Testament, the word refers to the Old Testament psalms, and In Psalm 20, verse 42, our Lord quoted Psalm 110. In Luke 24 to 44, He said that all things were written about Him in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. All those things must be fulfilled. So the Psalms were certainly a large part of corporate worship in the early church. In Acts 140, the disciples quoted Psalm 69. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul said that the Psalms were to be used for the edification of the church. In our modern context, we have songs which, are based on, songs which are based on the Psalms. As a matter of fact, Dan Kreider, the pastor of worship at Grace Emmanuel Baptist, or Bible Church, and Jupiter has compiled music into a new Psalter, which he has subtitled Psalms for the Church. It includes music based on all the Psalms. I would commend them to you. It's an amazingly wonderful labor of love which he has made available to us as a church. Now, hymns, secondly, primarily refer to songs of praise. In the early church, these were probably distinguished from music sourced from the Psalms, but they, but they were sourced from the doctrines of Scripture. In, the, in our modern context, we have hymns such as, Crown Him with Many Crowns, uh, or The Church's One Foundation. Hymns like these are theologically rich and are used by the church by worship pastors to teach doctrine and theology. So when you're singing they sing in these great hymns of the faith, you are actually learning and being, you're being exposed to incredible theology. More recently, Keith and Kristen Getty have been a source of modern hymns. We sing some of them. Paul also refers to spiritual songs. Spiritual songs were generally songs of testimony, which convey spiritual truth. In our modern context, we have a treasure trove of these songs. In in recent years, there's been a surge of this type of music available for the church. Several years ago, Sovereign Grace began writing very solid spiritual songs, which can be sung as congregational music. There have been several others who have been used to write music fit for a church context. But for all the good, this genre has been greatly abused. Modern Christian radio plays many self-centered songs which have no place in, local, in the local church worship setting. They're, they're not, not even written to be sung, con- sung congregationally. A few years ago, a- Angie and I attended a church in South Carolina which tried to congregationally sing the Hillsong United song, So Will I, the 100 Billion Times or whatever it is. The, the song was, was popular, as some of you may know, a, few, a couple of years ago, but it was written as a performance song. It wasn't even written as a congregational song. So, so the song, while it may be catchy, it wasn't fit or isn't fit for con- corporate worship. And as we were trying to sing it in this congregation, the congregation didn't even know how to sing it. And it, so it, it was this confused mess musically where, the, where ultimately it was being sung from up front because they understood how to sing it. But it didn't edify anyone, in my opinion, anyway. Ultimately, in this verse, Paul wants to give the latitude for all types of musical expression. But we must ensure that each type of musical expression has been informed by the Word of God and is an expression of a Spirit-filled Christian. This leads us to the fourth quick check. Our singing must be properly done. Our singing must be properly done. Look at your text in 519. Paul says that we are to be singing and making melody in our hearts. Singing simply means to sing using the God-given instrument of our voice. In the words of John MacArthur, "The, the human voice is the most beautiful of all instruments. Its various tones, inflections, and moods seem almost limitless. Because it is itself human, it can speak to us as no other form of music. We've been given these voices. We've been given voices to speak and to sing praise to our Creator. Therefore, we should use them in the context of corporate worship as we sing to one another. Using our voices to sing should be the the product then of the Spirit-filled Christian. The the Spirit-filled heart will express itself in singing, but it will also be expressed in the worshipful use of instruments including stringed and percussion instruments. We use our voices to sing and our talents to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. We, when we do so, we join the heavenly host in praise to God. This leads to the fifth quick check. Our singing should be upwardly directed. Upwardly directed. Look at your text that these, we should be singing and making melody with our heart to the Lord. We are to join together, singing and making melody to the Lord. We have an audience of one. All our praise should go to Him. He alone deserves our worship. In Psalm 145, David says that he will praise the name of the Lord forever and ever. In Psalm 145, 3, he says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And he goes on to praise Him for His attributes. Church, our worship music must emphasize the glory of the Lord. It must focus on His greatness. It must clearly worship Him for for saving us by His grace. The, The Lord alone deserves our worship and praise. We must never be focused on man or self as we sing to our Lord. It needs to be upwardly focused. Brethren, if you desire to live a spirit filled life, then you will treasure our Lord. You will speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You will sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. And these, these things are done are to be done because we worship Christ for what He's accomplished. The perfect Lamb of God went to the cross as a sacrifice for sin. He shed His blood to redeem us from our sins, to buy us back from that slave market of sin, to purchase us and, and make us His. He was dead, yet raised in the power of the resurrection. Then He was raised and seated on... Uh, to. Sit on the throne of God in the heavenlies. And in Him we have been raised up and seated in the heavenlies as well. You see, these, these truths, these truths should drive our hearts in worship. It should drive our hearts to be filled with the Spirit, to sing to Him as we anticipate this full redemption when we will sing His praises for all of eternity. If you don't know Christ, as your Lord and Savior, consider consider Him. He bore the sins of the world on the cross. Uh, the Father, he, he made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Consider the glory of what Christ has accomplished. According to Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, so that and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Bow your knee today. Bow your knee today. Confess Him today. Confess Him today so that you will be able to sing His praises for all eternity. So that you will join that heavenly chorus in song. Singing a new song, a song of redemption. Don't let today go by. Because the alternative is a place where there will be no song. There'll only be wrath, There'll only be eternal hellfire, There'll be no singing. The Bible says that every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess I beg you to do so today. I beg you. Heavenly Father we thank you Praise you. Pray that we would sing, that we would sing out. May we not seek after these experiences that don't bring you glory you are glorified by a redeemed people. You're glorified by a people who sing your praises for what you've done, for what you've accomplished in saving us. May we look forward to that incredible day where we will join the heavenly chorus singing a new song, a song of redemption and victory, and praise to you. In Christ's name. Amen.